the gospel of the Lord. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Good morning, y'all. Please be seated and good morning. I read an interesting piece online this last week. The title of the article was 10 Reasons Why, 10 Reasons Why a Billion is the New Million. 10 Reasons Why a Billion is the New Million. Here's the list. I'm just going to give you my top five faves. One, everyone wants to be a millionaire. Two, even, sorry, two, millennial billionaires are changing things. Three, you can reach over a billion people through YouTube. Four, sporting events with over a billion viewers capture the entire nation. And five, technology connects us. Facebook, WhatsApp, and Baidu have over a billion users. A billion. It's the new million. Put it another way, $1 million ain't what it used to be. Now, today, today we come to Matthew 18, this parable that Jesus tells about an unmerciful servant. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like a king who had a slave. This slave, Jesus continues, is drowning in debt, debt that he owes to the king himself. How much debt? Well, the amount, according to Jesus in verse 24 of Matthew 18 this morning, the amount is 10,000 talents. Now, friends, that's the first thing that we need to wrap our heads around this morning. This is a ridiculous amount of money, 10,000 talents. It's a ridiculous amount of money. Some scholars say that, that it's the equivalent of 200,000 years worth of income. I read another scholar who said that not even the Pharaoh of Egypt had that much money in his coffers. You see, the amount that this slave owes, it's a ridiculous amount. It's staggering. It's ludicrous. It's an outrageous amount. Even in 100 lifetimes, there is no way that this slave could have paid that amount, this debt that he owes to this king. This slave does not owe a million dollars. This slave does not owe a billion dollars. This slave owes, according to Jesus, a zillion dollars. What happens next is that this slave begs for mercy. He begs for mercy from the king, falling to his knees in verse 26. He pleads with the king, have patience on me. I will pay you everything. The king does have pity on the slave, like the Lord, like the Lord in the first verse of the psalm this morning, Psalm 103, this king shows kindness and mercy. This king practices forgiveness. He releases the slave, forgiving him his debt. Now, here is where things get really interesting because the slave leaves the palace. He departs from the king's presence. And who does he bump into? Another slave. Let's call him Slave B, who's also in debt. This time, though, the first slave, Slave A, now he's the creditor. 
He is now the creditor. This former debtor has become the creditor. And how does slave A, the new creditor, how does he treat slave B, this debtor who owes him not 10,000 talents, but merely a hundred denarii or about four months wages? How does he treat him? Does he treat his neighbor the way that the king treated him? Does he show slave B mercy and kindness? Does he practice forgiveness? Does he forgive his neighbor's debt? No, he does not. Grabbing slave B violently by the throat, he says, pay me what you owe, verse 29. Now, slave B begs for mercy, just as slave A had done with the king, but slave A couldn't care less. He throws slave B into the prison until he would pay the debt, verse 30. And now the plot thickens even more because upon hearing about this, the king summons slave A, the former debtor who failed to show mercy. The king rebukes the slave for his behavior, for his lack of mercy, his lack of kindness. He throws him into prison and has him tortured until he would pay the entire debt, verse 34. Wow, it's quite a story. What are we to make of it? What does it mean for us this morning at St. George's? Well, I think we get a hint from the Old Testament lesson that Mary Stewart just read to us from Genesis 50. Here is Joseph, right? the number two leader in all of the Egyptian empire, second only to the great Pharaoh himself. But as you might remember, Joseph has quite the backstory. Thanks to his brothers, Joseph has been to hell and back, literally. After throwing him into a deep pit where Joseph was trapped for several days, his brothers sell him into slavery. By the way, can you imagine, like, what kind of anger, what kind of hatred and rage would cause, would possess a group of siblings to sell their brother into slavery? And so eventually, Joseph finds himself in Egypt as a slave. After becoming, uh, at, sorry, after a season spent in prison, he gets a series of promotions, ultimately becoming the assistant to the Pharaoh himself, the Pharaoh's number two man. And so here's Joseph in Genesis 50 this morning, standing before his brothers, the very ones who sold him into slavery decades earlier. Their father, Israel slash Jacob, has died, and the brothers are quaking in their boots. There's beads of sweat rolling down their foreheads. They're literally scared out of their minds. So fearful are they about their brother's likely revenge. I mean, it really is kind of like a Tarantino film. I don't, I don't know about you, but it helps me to, to imagine it that way. And speaking of a Tarantino film, we've already heard about torture this morning once. That would have been a natural and obvious choice for Joseph vis-a-vis -vis his brothers. All he would need to do is lift a finger and presto, 
prison and torture for his brothers for the rest of their days as a quite understandable form of vengeance. But is that what Joseph does? No. Instead, like the good king in Jesus' parable, he forgives. He releases. He sets free. He restores his brothers, lavishing upon them kindness and mercy. Again, like the Lord in Psalm 103, 8. And friends, there it is. There it is. There is the point of Jesus' parable. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. How often should I forgive? Peter asks Jesus in the first verse of today's gospel lesson. Seven times. Jesus looks at Peter and gives him his answer. No, Peter, not seven times. You must forgive others a zillion times. Not a million times, not a billion times, but a zillion times. If you look up the word zillion, as I did this last week using my 50-year-old Webster's Dictionary that my mother gave me a long time ago, you will see that it means an indeterminately large number. Vocabulary.com says that it's a huge but nonspecific number. In other words, it's a mind-boggling number. It's a staggering sum. It's a ludicrous, outrageous amount. But wait, doesn't Jesus this morning say 77 times? Doesn't he look at Peter and say, Peter, you must forgive your neighbor 77 times? No, actually. I much prefer the King James Version, how it renders the Greek here. The KJV says 70 times 7. That's a lot more than 7 times 7. It says 70 times 7. But Matt, I can hear some of you saying that's 490. 70 times 7, that's 490. That's a far cry from a zillion. No, actually it's not. Because it all has to do with this number 7. See, the number seven wasn't just any old ordinary number in the minds of first century Jews like Jesus and Peter. The number seven was a special number. It was symbolic of boundlessness, perfection, limitlessness. To quote New Testament scholar Gerald Bilks, Jesus is saying here that forgiveness should not be bounded. How many times should we forgive? There's no upper limit, Jesus says. You should forgive a zillion times. Side note, why are Jesus' parables so weird? Why are they so strange? So out of proportion, I mean, a zillion, Jesus, really? 200,000 lifetimes of income, really, Jesus? Why are they so out of proportion, Jesus' parables? I looked up synonyms this last week for out of proportion. I found adjectives like excessive, inordinate, lopsided, incommensurate. That is how so many of Jesus' parables are, completely out of proportion. I mean, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I can barely imagine 
a camel going through the eye of a needle. It is completely fantastical. Earlier, I mentioned Tarantino. But when I think of Jesus' parables, I don't so much think of Tarantino. I think of Borges, Jose Luis Borges. Borges is an author of fiction whose genre is fantasy. Or another label for it might be and is magical realism. Magical realism. Other examples of magical realism, the Italian children's story Pinocchio, the stories of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, for example, his short story, A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings. What a title, A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings. Also, many of the legends of Genie in the Bottle. Those are some examples of magical realism. And when we read Jesus' parables, we have to read them kind of like that. We have to read them with our imaginations. We have to take Jesus on his own terms. When he tells these stories, they're borderline ludicrous. Of course, he knows this. That's exactly what he's trying to do. But why? Why are they so out of proportion, so lopsided, so excessive? Maybe it's because he's trying to wake us up. Maybe it's as if we're in a trance and Jesus wants us to snap out of it. His parables, maybe, are like smelling salts. Smelling salts that a doctor might give to someone who's fainted or passed out to get them to wake up, to regain their right mind, their consciousness, their lucidity. I found an article this last week at the, at the Huffington Post that says this, quote, most of Jesus' parables include a preposterous element, a preposterous element. Someone apparently unaware of cost-benefit analysis leaves 99 sheep alone and vulnerable in the, wilderness, in the wilderness to look for that one that got away. The reign of God grows from the tiniest seed into the largest of trees. A father whose son has utterly disgraced him not only welcomes the loser back home, but spots him from a distance and runs to embrace him. Dignified men did not run in antiquity at least not unless they were in an athletic event or something was chasing them, close quote. We could also mention that one time Jesus says that if you have faith, you can say to a mountain, be toppled into the sea and the mountain will do it. You see, magical realism. Most of Jesus' parables, the Huffington Post author writes, include a preposterous element. Preposterous indeed. Jesus is trying to wake us up. Wake us up to what? To wake us up to the true reality of his kingdom and in particular, God's abundance. In particular, God's abundance, God's lavish gifts, God's lavish Grace, have you ever noticed that most of Jesus' most lopsided parables are about money? The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a jewel in a field and immediately he sells all of his possessions immediately and buys the field. That's just one example of many. We talked about the 
camel in the eye of a needle, another example of so many. And this is today's connection, you guessed it, to stewardship on this kickoff Sunday at St. George's. This year, will we allow, will I allow, will we allow our imagination to be captured by the true proportions of the kingdom of God? Will we put our trust in God's abundance? When you fill out that promise card this year, reweaving the fabric, don't do it. May we not do it as if we're in a trance. Instead, may we wake up and may we ask the Lord of abundance to give us clarity to show us the true proportions of the kingdom of God. But friends, one last question for you this morning, back to forgiveness. Why should we forgive so many times, a zillion times, according to Jesus? Well, I've spoken twice this morning about prison. Is it not the case that when we withhold forgiveness, we are the ones who are trapped and imprisoned? I've spoken twice this morning about torture, a tragic and inhuman phenomenon. But isn't it the case that when we withhold forgiveness from others, it's we ourselves who undergo a kind of torture, maybe a self-imposed torture. To quote Lutheran preacher Philip Martin, don't we truly torture ourselves when we withhold forgiveness from those who've wronged us, when we remain in bondage to the anger, the resentment, the bitterness. That is exactly what Joseph understood in Genesis 50. Forgiveness is not easy, and it's not cheap, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer might say. But you know what? You know what it is? It's necessary. It's necessary to be free, to be healed to live a thriving life. So you see, we forgive for the very same reason that we eat or breathe in order to live. But the practice of forgiveness doesn't give us biological life, what the New Testament calls, calls bios, B-I-O-S. No, the practice of forgiveness gives us spiritual life, zoe, divine life, the life of God. You see, we forgive that we might live. Forgiveness is necessary for living a truly spiritual life. And speaking of necessity, did you know, did you know that when Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 18 that he is en route to the cross? That's what we saw a couple of chapters ago in Matthew 16 when Jesus shifts his direction and heads out in the direction of the cross. As Jesus tells this parable of forgiveness to Peter, he's literally walking toward the eventual location of the cross. The cross that shows us the true proportions of God's love. The cross that shows us how excessive God's love for us is, how excessive how out of proportion, how over the top, how radically abundant. 
Three weeks ago, our family had a difficult experience. Our beloved dog, Janie, that beautiful schnorky, 14 years old, she swallowed a two-inch chicken bone that punctured right through her esophagus. When we, the four of us, were at that animal hospital grappling with the excruciating decision of whether we should put our beloved Janie to sleep, Bella and I, the 20-year-old and I, began to weep with sorrow just over the thought of losing her. That is how much we love Janie. But that's just a dog. How much do you love your children, your spouse, your best friend? God loves us so much more. How do we know? The cross. On the cross, the king, the true king, paid the debt. What debt? The debt that you and I could never pay, not in a hundred lifetimes, his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bolters deeply, deeply love our dog, Janie, but God loves you more, and the cross shows us that. How much more? A zillion times more. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.